people will forget what you say, they'll forget what you do, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. That is Will Gadara, the former co-owner of the Levin Madison Park, which made number one in the world's 50 best restaurants in 2017. Will's book is Unreasonable Hospitality, which is now my favorite book on this topic. So you think hospitality can't really be taught? Well, it can be through ongoing encouragement and inspiration. Will Gadara, author of Unreasonable Hospitality, he's coming up next here on CFO Bookshelf. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. One of my go-to books on great service over the years has been Zingerman's Guide to Great Service. It's a book I've been giving to CEOs for many years. And my other favorite book is Positively Outrageous Service by T. Scott Gross. Really just a funny, gifted speaker as well. But after reading Will's book, I was blown away. And the two titles I just mentioned, they mention service, not hospitality, like this book, Unreasonable Hospitality. So when I jumped on my call with Will, that's the first thing I told Will. This is now my go-to book on hospitality. Oh, I really appreciate that. That that means a lot to me to hear. You know, a book is it's a funny thing where you spend a lot of time working on it, right? And the, and there's this this vulnerability when you put it out in the world because you're like, "My gosh, I hope people like it." And so those words are are very affirming to me and I appreciate you saying them. I love origin stories. I love those Peter Parker type origin stories. Now you may say yours precedes uh, what I'm going to suggest, but I'm going to say, did it start? Is it your 12th birthday? Your dad takes you to the four seasons. Would you say that's kind of the kind of your, I think this is what I want to do. Yeah, for sure. So my, I mean, my dad was a restaurateur as well and my gosh, I, you know, my dad and I have a very, very close relationship and, there was some adversity with my mom's health that, that helped lead to that. Um, and, and because of the closeness of our relationship from a even earlier age, um, I, I kind of just wanted to be like him when I grew up. Right. And so he was a restaurateur. I wanted to be a restaurateur, but it was when he took me to the four seasons for dinner that it became more than just wanting to be like my dad and actually wanting to be in restaurants. Um, the Four Seasons, for those who don't know it, was somewhat describe it as like the, the first, the original American fine dining restaurant. Before that, the, the fine dining restaurants in New York were all French in their inspiration and, and the owners were French. And then along came the Four Seasons in the Seagram's building. And the Four Seasons was kind of everything, right? Like it had this marble pool, um, that social status was defined by how close to the pool you were sitting. And it was kind of the, the, the who's who of industry ate at the four seasons, arguably every single day. And your, your table that you got sat at to find kind of where you were in the power rankings. Um, I didn't know any of that when I went there when I was 12, I just knew that it was that fancy restaurant and being obsessed with my dad and his career. I wanted to experience it. Um, 
one of the things I, I talk about in the book, the, the greatest quote, I think, about hospitality, I've come to learn is often misattributed to Maya Angelou, but people will forget what you say, they'll forget what you do, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. Um, and there's a lot that we can unpack about that quote, but as it pertains to that night, I don't remember much about my meal. I remember that I dropped my napkin and someone replaced it. And I think it was the first time anyone called me sir. And it made me feel very important. Um, I, I remember them carving the duck table side. I remember lovely time with my dad. But the thing I remember most of all was the feeling, which was that for a few hours, everything in the world slipped away and all that remained was what was happening in that room, more specifically at that table, me and my dad connecting as people. Um, they created this little magical world. And after that meal, I was hooked and knew that one day I wanted to be able to create magical worlds of my own. There is another special moment with your dad, which I know you had many of them, but after your mom's funeral, didn't you two go to dinner? And, and that's just a, a beautiful, wonderful experience. Very similar, right? Yeah. So another iconic New York restaurant, that one was Danielle, um, the, the flagship restaurant of chef Daniel Balud, one of the, one of the great chefs in the world too. I had met when I was at college at Cornell, he was a guest chef that came up and he and I established a great relationship. I was the guy in charge of entertaining him and his team when they came up to visit us. And he invited me to go see him at his restaurant one day. Um, and when he invited me, I wasn't sure whether I'd ever take him up on that offer, but yeah, my mother passed away the day after I graduated from, from college. And two weeks later, I was going to Spain for, um, an internship of sorts. Um, and I, I tentatively canceled that trip because of my mom's passing. Um, and my dad said, what are you doing? Like, go, like, you can always turn around and come home if it doesn't feel right, but don't let her passing define you and like learn from it, grow from it, mourn her loss. But she wouldn't want you to sit here feeling bad for yourself. Get on that plan. And we lived in Boston at the time. Um, by that point, I couldn't get a flight from Boston. So I booked a flight from New York and my dad drove me to the city to, to get on a flight from New York. And I remember meeting Danielle Balut and we decided, or I decided that I wanted to try taking my dad out for dinner this time. And I emailed Danielle Balut. He made us a reservation. Um, and it wasn't an ordinary reservation. I didn't realize it until we got there that he sat us in this little like glass walled room that sat above the kitchen. It's called the skybox. Um, and we walked through the bar, through the dining room, into the kitchen. My dad and I are both like, wait, what is happening? And Danielle personally introduced every one of our courses. They sent us probably 17 courses of food that night. It was magical. We were the last people in the restaurant. Danielle stayed with us until the very end. He comped the entire meal. And the reason it's, it's relevant is because... What I saw that night was this was one of the hardest seasons of my dad in my life. I just lost my mom. He had just lost his wife. And through 
hospitality through the sheer uh, graciousness, the unreasonable generosity of time and spirit and food and wine. They once again created a world where everything else fell away for a few hours and all that was left was what was happening at that table. And during one of the hardest seasons of our lives, that night was one of the happiest moments of our lives. And it, it just reiterated for me at a different stage in my life the extent to which there's nobility in serving other people that you can create moments of celebration or moments of respite. And I've always said that you can't be great at what you do until you give yourself the grace and the space to acknowledge, to name why that work matters. And I just believe there's such importance in hospitality work. And that's not just around the dinner table. That's in any business where you're serving other people that you can literally, even if it's just for a moment, genuinely and significantly positively impact someone else's life. And on the hard days, that's always been enough to get me out of bed and, and give me the energy I need to give all of myself to the work. Speaking of your mother and father, I know you say this is not a memoir, but I'm so thankful, Will, for you mentioning the parts about your mother, her illness, her passing. I had the media copy, and as I'm reading through this, I wanted to jump through the PDF document and give your dad a hug. Now, we're hmm. going to talk about your dad further because your dad has tons of great advice he gave you. Your, your dad's <laughs> footprint is all over this manuscript. But I wanted to just reach into that PDF and hug your dad. Your dad is a hero for the way he took care. I mean, first, he is a father. Hmm. He had a job. But he's taking care of a, his wife. And I, that meant a lot to me. Your dad is a very special human being. Thank you for saying that, man. I, I could not agree more. Um, yeah, my mom, when I was four years old, was diagnosed with brain cancer. Um, they were able to remove most of the tumor, not all of it. They used radiation treatment to kill the rest. That was before radiation was as refined as it is now. There ended up being like incremental damage done by the effects of radiation. And, you know, by the time I was eight or nine, she was a quadriplegic and you know, my dad for me represents integrity, loyalty, discipline, intention, and a ton of love um, because he worked restaurant hours. But, you know, every morning he'd wake up, get her out of bed, put her in the wheelchair, get her fed, get me up, make sure he was both a father and a mother to me. Um, go to work 12, 13, 14 hours a day, come on reverse and Never once as a kid did I ever get the inkling that he was feeling bad for himself. Um, he, I, I, I use the words opportunity and responsibility interchangeably in the book and, and kind of in life as well, where when you're faced with moments of adversity or challenge, um, you have a responsibility and an opportunity to rise above and to take them and turn those situations around and to not only allow those moments to make you better, but to rise to the occasion and play the role in other people's lives that you want to play. And I 
believe that because I saw it firsthand for years from a man that is my dad, my mentor, my best friend, and and yeah, my my hero. We have a global listenership, and I don't know how many of them are similar to me. So to be transparent, Will, I, I'm not an expert. I'm sorry of fine dining. Uh, but I, I know that if I were to experience uh, a love Madison Park, I would be blown away. But I am ignorant. I am incompetent. I'm ignorant. Uh, I have zero acumen on the star system. Now, if someone says it's a four-star restaurant, I know that's got to be a great restaurant. But before we get into the book, could we talk a little bit about uh, you can mention the Michelin Guide if you want, but the the top fifty restaurants in the world just 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 a, a primer, if you will, on rating systems for restaurants. Yeah, for sure. So, and by the way, I'm glad that you don't know much about fine dining, and the book was still uh, something that resonated with you. That that was the goal, and so that that makes me happy to hear. Okay, here here's the Star Systems 101. Uh, for restaurants. So these days, I mean, there's so many people that rate restaurants and give stars and it's become its own industry at the stage is criticizing my industry. (laughs) Um, But in New York, there's only a few of them that really matter. The New York times gives stars to restaurants one to four, four being the best. There's only a handful of restaurants that have four stars. Um, one star doesn't mean it's a bad restaurant. It just means it could be a, a very good restaurant, depending on the level of, of formality. No stars, generally not a review that you want to receive. Michelin started in France, and they review restaurants all over the world now. Um, three stars in Michelin is the best. Um, but if you get any stars from Michelin, you're feeling pretty good. I just want to say thank you for putting in that little history of the Michelin guy. That, that was a marketing coup. And that was, again, that was great. I did not, I, I didn't know about the Michelin guide. So again, that was, sorry for interrupting. No, 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 no. For the listeners at home, the Michelin guide, obviously Michelin is a tire company. They started the Michelin guide long time ago as this, this free guide um, where they're reviewing restaurants. One star means it's a good restaurant. Two stars means it's worth a detour. Three stars means it's worth a trip of its own. They just started it to get people to drive their cars right. more often so that they need to get new tires more often. <laughs> but it turned into its own thing, obviously, and it's become... Um, so New York Times, one to four stars. Michelin, one to three stars. And then the the list of the 50 best restaurants in the world, which is the only thing that kind of ranks all the restaurants globally against one another. And it's voted on by... 1,200 to 1,500 restaurateurs, critics, chefs across the world. Um, and that's one of the really big ones. Is that, a, is that an appropriate restaurant it, criticism it, 101? It, it is. It's very helpful. And, and I, was, I was even taking track because I think in 2013, you were fifth. And, and by the way, we can save this for later. I loved it when you're really excited and then you found out you're number 50 but it's still a big deal. And, and then in 2014, fourth, mm-hmm. 2015, fifth, uh, 2016, third, and then 2017, you hit number one. And that had to be so cool for uh, for you and your your, your partner, uh, Daniel, I believe is his name. Um, 
but anyway, that was very, very helpful because yeah. I did not understand uh, the, the the process. I want to talk a little bit about hospitality. And by the way, the quote is so good, I'm going to reread it. And you even mentioned that it's mis- at, uh, the attributions not always probably correct, but you say that people will forget what you do. Uh, they'll forget what you said, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. Even though you've touched mm. on this, what is your favorite definition of hospitality? Yeah, no, I, I say this in the book that the the best the best definition I ever got was when I was interviewing someone to join my team at my first management position long, long time ago. I didn't end up I didn't end up hiring her, which I feel bad about, given how many times I've used her answer. But she said, "Service is black and white, and hospitality is color." And those two quotes they they really have a relationship to one another, right? Service is what you do. Hospitality is how you make people feel when you do what you do. And they're they're two very, very different things. And I think people so often conflate the two words as being one and the same. Um, And in doing so, they lose out on the opportunity to thrive when it comes to hospitality. Um, In a restaurant, in any customer service business, yes, it is table stakes. I need to get the food to the right person at the right time at the right table. I need to make sure that the food is cooked well. We need to make sure that we know what's in the dish such that if someone asks us a question, we're able to answer eloquently and articulately and correctly. Um, I mean, there's there's thousands of details that go into service being technically excellent. But people don't remember much of that stuff. What they remember is how all those things, how all those actions translated into emotion. Did they feel a sense of connection with you and with the people around their table? Did they feel a sense of belonging? Did they feel seen? Did they feel welcome? What was the the overarching emotion that they walked out of your doors carrying with them? Um, and And that has less to do with the the technical elements of how you serve people, but it's more about the human elements with which you engage them. Do they feel like you care? Are you someone that derives significant and genuine pleasure out of making other people happy? Have you experienced that enough to know how good it feels to make other people happy? Because if you have, and if you bring your full self to the table, literal, literal table and metaphorical table, that's when service like turns into hospitality, almost like a caterpillar into a butterfly to get like super cheesy about it. Right. Like it's, it's when people no longer look at it as a transaction, but they feel it fully as an experience. Um, And I think by the way, that you can do that at a four-star restaurant. You can do it at a McDonald's. You can do it at an insurance office. You can do it at a bank teller. You can do it, Everywhere in between. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? 
Join us on the Make More podcast as our host Matt Heslin brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. You bring this up in the book. So because this show is being released right at the time of the book being released, no one has probably read this just yet. So the answer is in the book. You even bring up the question, but I'm going to follow up. Anyway, can hospitality be taught? Hmm. Yeah, so that's, it's interesting. I came up respecting a lot of people who believed it could not, right? You hire the people that are inherently hospitable and then you train them on the excellence, but you can't do it the other way around. And the word taught is an interesting one and we could debate that. I definitively believe that hospitality can be encouraged and it can be inspired. I believe that if there was a law passed tomorrow that everyone had to be really, really, really nice to everyone that worked at the Department of Motor Vehicles, <laughs> that the DMV would become one of the happiest places on earth. Because it's impossible to know or to be inclined to or inspired to want to give hospitality unless you know how good it is to receive it. Um, and I find that if you build a workplace where you extend acts of graciousness and hospitality to people who work for you, such that they can connect in real time and firsthand how good it feels to receive it. Then they start to understand how good it feels to deliver it too. So let's, let's, let's pretend for a moment that you agree that it can be encouraged. Now let's take on whether it can be taught. I think of hospitality as a craft, no different than any craft. When, when someone's learning how to cook, you study it, you practice it, you learn rules, you practice those rules. Eventually, you figure out what rules you want to break. It's a muscle. It's something you strengthen. Um, I know people who have said, you know, that person's so hospitable. They're so thoughtful. I wish I could be that thoughtful. Being thoughtful isn't something you're born with. It's something you choose to do. Um and I think, you know, what we found in, in when I'm teaching hospitality, the people that work for me or training them to be hospitable, one of the best things to do is, is almost to put them in a situation where they've delivered some level of unreasonable hospitality to someone else. And they've seen the look on that person's face. Then when they, re- when they receive that hospitality and, I believe that quickly becomes one of the most beautiful addictions. There, there are a few things more energizing than seeing the look of complete joy on someone's face when they receive a gift you are responsible for giving them. And once you've felt that feeling once, you want to feel it over and over again. Um, and then like the systems or the logistics that go into how to give people gifts. And I'm not talking about things wrapped in presents always. Sometimes it's just the gift of feeling a certain way. I believe you can get better and better at that and and more and more addicted to the feeling. Um, and I've seen people that are kind of curmudgeon or too cool for school suddenly 
after a certain amount of time, become the most thoughtful, unreasonably hospitable people I know. You just need to make it cool to care about that kind of stuff. Maybe the word I should have used, Will, is can it be modeled? Because if we keep peeling back the skin of the onion, people at your level and then the managers below you, they're modeling it every single day. And and I would think, how can how can I miss this? Because I'm getting to see other people do it. One more point about the uh, the teaching, mm-hmm. the modeling uh, of, of hospitality. In your book, you talk about systematizing hospitality. And there may be people thinking, oh, no, you, you can't do that. That's going to take away the emotion, the feelings of it. But explain a little bit. And again, you've got some examples in the book of systematizing these hospitable events, activities. Yeah. And yeah, and I think to, to add some context, what, what we're talking about is systemizing like gestures of extreme hospitality, the, the kind of like above and beyond gestures you can give to your guests to make them feel like, whoa, like to kind of pull back and just say, wow, that was incredible. And what I talk about in the book is kind of creating a culture where people, yeah, I think you use the word. Go for uh, it. What are we going to say? Improvisational. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That a lot of it is improvisational, right? Creating a culture where people are present enough with their guests that they're picking up on the things people are saying or not saying. That the people on your team aren't taking themselves so seriously that they miss out on opportunities to to make people feel seen, um, and that people remember that the that. The best way to give people a genuine sense of belonging is to remember that one size fits one. Some of the greatest acts of hospitality are unique just to the person receiving it. But if you care about hospitality, if you want to go all in, you can't rely on improvisational moments alone. And I believe in every business, there are patterns, if you look hard enough for them, where you can see reoccurring moments that you can prepare for in advance such that you're ready to deliver and exceed someone's expectations. The examples in a restaurant, I think some of these are in the book where um, if you're the kind of restaurant where a lot of tourists go to people want to discover the city around you. And so it's not uncommon for someone at a restaurant to say, Hey, where's a great place to go to brunch or what's a great cocktail bar or are there any good museums? And if that happens often enough, Design and print a little book that's custom to your brand that gives them tips of all your favorite places that they can walk out the door with. Um, maybe they're not the only people to receive that gift, but they're only getting it because they gave you an opening to give it to them. Um, I talk about real estate agents where so many, every time I've ever bought an apartment at best, I've gotten a bottle of sparkling wine in the fridge as my thank you gift at worst. They've just thrown the keys in the kitchen counter. This is someone with whom I've spent weeks, if not months looking together for my new home. If they've been paying attention, they know every intimate detail of my life. Um, People look for homes at different stages. They're either getting a bigger place because they've just had a baby. They're getting a smaller place because their kids have just gone off to school. And there are gifts that make sense for each one of those moments. If If I've just had a baby, Okay, leave me the bottle of champagne. That's nice. But alongside it, leave me a box of those little plastic outlet covers so that I don't have to go and find them myself when I'm already overwhelmed by the process of moving. What that shows me is that they care about me. They're thinking about my life 
in a different way than they're thinking about everyone else's lives. Um, and like they've been listening. I feel seen. And so when I say systemizing it, I'm saying go out and buy a whole case of those little plastic outlet covers. So you just know they're there and all you need to do is recognize the moment and deploy the system you've already put into place. And I think they, those patterns, they exist in every single business. Um, it's just a matter of slowing down enough to identify what they are and then being a little bit of creative and determining how you're going to react to them when they come about. You triggered a, another story in the book, the car salesperson buying the 18 year old for mm. the parent, the triple a one year's worth of triple a uh, insurance. I think that is phenomenal. Every car dealer should be uh, <laughs> cognizant of that idea, which brings up another idea I loved in the book related to hospitality, the, the rule of 95, five, that is brilliant. I love the rule of 95, <laughs> five is, is that your origination or did that partly your dad or Danny Meyer or someone else? <clears throat> no, no, this one is, this one's, uh, original to me. Um, probably started as a justification <laughs> and, then I, and then I realized that there was actually something real there. Um, my dad raised me to be a very prudent business person to watch every penny during the good times and the bad to manage the expenses of a business, like a crazy person, right. To like take that very, very seriously. And that's an essential part of being a good business person. Um, the rule of 95.5 says that manage your money, you know, in a, in a maniacal way, 95% of the time, so that 5% of the time you can spend it, quote, foolishly. And the reason I say, quote, foolishly is because it's not actually foolish at all. It's that 5%, if spent in the right way, that creates the kind of lasting memories that supercharge your business, Um and that the hard part is that oftentimes that 5% is impossible to measure. And there's an unfortunate reality where in most businesses, what gets measured gets managed. But just because you can't measure the way you make people feel doesn't mean it doesn't matter. In fact, I believe it means it matters more. 95.5, when I talk about that, yeah, the 5% are those outlet covers. The 5% are those AAA memberships. The 5% is that little printed guide uh, of restaurants and bars and museums in the neighborhood. The 5% represents two things for the two most important stakeholders. For the guest, that 5% means you're just going above and beyond and doing something fun and cool and creative to make them happy. And for the team, it gives them a level of creative autonomy. They're no longer just executing someone else's vision in my business, serving plates of food that someone else has created. You are setting aside this 5% to spend quote foolishly where they get to come up with their own ideas. And those ideas directly impact the guest experience. You're giving them ownership. You're giving them authorship in that 5%. You're taking salespeople and you're turning them into product designers. And I can say this with, profound confidence when people get to contribute genuinely to the thing that you are selling 
they are going to be that much more motivated and inclined to help you sell it. And, and so I think the 5% is actually the best investment you can make. And I'll say every dollar I spent on that 5% had much more significant outcomes than any dollar I ever spent on any standard marketing or public relations, um, in spite of the fact that it was harder to measure. When I read a book, I have a notepad that I'll just jot down. This is a big idea or even smaller ideas. I'll just jot them down at the end of the book. There may be a list of 12 items, 10, 15 in your book. There's over a dozen. So I'm going to whittle down three. Huh? And that was hard. Uh, we've already talked about one okay. of the, the, the rule of okay, I appreciate five. that. So corporate smart, restaurant smart. Loved it. And by the way, I think that came from your father, uh, a concept coming from your father. I dad. loved restaurant smart, corporate smart. It's not one or the other. It's both. Why... I have like five hmm. different questions I could ask, and maybe you get to pick the the right question. But I'm going to assume, and I know you do some some uh, consulting. There are probably some restaurateurs focusing more on being restaurant smart, and then you have some, and I would say this is going to be more in the QSR casual dining space, maybe more corporate smart, but. Give us a just a brief definition of the two, but why is it important to get those two to be married together? Yeah, by the way, it's it's much easier to do one or the other than to try to do both. Um, they don't necess- they're not necessarily friends, but um, I believe that in choosing conflicting goals, and this is an idea by by a guy named Roger Martin, that you actually end up with the most the most brilliant results. And so, okay, corporate smart versus restaurant smart. The best way to think about it from a very high level is where the highest paid people work. Are they at the unit level or are they in the corporate office? Because which direction you choose to take defines a lot about your business. And restaurant smart companies, every restaurant has a real identity, right? People on the ground in the unit level are making decisions. They're able to be creative because they're making decisions and able to be creative. They have a more of a connection to the product and the guest can feel that in a corporate smart company, because their highest paid people are in the corporate office, they have systems, accounting, HR, um, you know, ordering all of these systems that just make them better businesses. And, when a business is a better business, they have more resources to to do more stuff, right? And so on one side, the people that are actually breathing life into the product directly for the people they're serving have, um, they're the ones that are empowered. On the other side, you have the people kind of building the structure and the systems upon which those restaurants can thrive. They're the ones that are empowered. It kind of becomes this this tension between control and creativity the reason to be corporate smart is you need controls in place to ensure consistency not only in excellence but in profitability 
The reason Restaurant Smart is right is because you should be empowering the people that are actually there serving your customers to be creative. But with too much control comes not enough creativity, and with too much creativity comes not enough control. And the answer is to put in the work to figure out where the controls absolutely need to exist and to take them away everywhere else. Um, to support through Corporate Smart and empower through Restaurant Smart. And by the way, I use Corporate Smart and Restaurant Smart because I'm a restaurant person. I believe this exists in every business, every chain, every franchise. In the restaurant industry, you call you use the term pre-meal meetings. Uh, I know some of the restaurants I've worked with, we call them huddles, uh, daily huddles, morning huddles. Uh, I know mm. other businesses have their terms. Because you're in the service indus- industry, hospitality industry, what is your advice for anyone? Even, even the you mentioned the, the the DMV a few minutes ago, Department of Motor Vehicle. What's your advice for service industries that don't have a pre meal meeting? And again, cha- change that for someone else's industry. What's your advice of why we need to have those? Yeah. So the pre meal meeting is the 30 minutes right before you open the doors to the guest. Um, it's the meeting at a, at a great restaurant. Uh, there's a lot of restaurants that do it while people are eating and they just go over, Hey, here are the new benefits. This is the new wine by the glass. This is the new dish. Like have a good service. That's not a great pre-meal meeting. That's just communicating facts. You could do that in an email. Um, at a great restaurant, the pre-meal meeting. Okay, you do that stuff. You're all together in a circle. You might as well. But then you pause, and it's less about the what and more about the why, where you bring things in that you've experienced outside the walls of your business, and you use them to help inspire those in your business. Um, I think those meetings are essential because it's in those meetings that two things happen. First of all, If people aren't hearing directly from their leader why the work they're doing is important, or if the leader isn't pausing to take the time to inspire them to do that work and to do it well, where where, and when else is it going to happen? But it's in those meetings that the people you work with cease being a collection of individuals and they come together and become a trusting team, unlocking a creative and collective capacity. Um, You need to take that time to bring your team together, to inspire one another, to share ideas with one another, to, you know, open up lines of conversation such that people can trust one another. Everyone talks about a team, but if you don't bring a team together and motivate them as a team collectively, like I I believe you're, you're just holding yourself back. I mean, there's a reason (laughs) why every great sports movie has the premium right? That's the locker room speech. It's because when a coach delivers a rousing locker room speech, the team has a better chance of winning. Um, Every day you open your doors to do business. That is, it's the big game. And how can you expect people to thrive and excel if you don't take time to bring them together and then fire them up? And I believe that if every business not just hospitality businesses, every customer service business, and honestly, every business that includes people working together. If everyone took 30 minutes a day 
and invested in that, I think the impact would be incalculable. One thing I noticed as I was reading the book, there be just not, I w- I'm not going to use the term out of the blue, but I get near the, it'd be the middle of a chapter, might be chapter eight, chapter 11. You'd be getting some advice from your dad. And, and so I went back and tried hmm. to find all the, 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 the citations of getting advice. I don't know if I got them all, but here are just a few that, that, that I found. Uh, there was a paperweight. Uh, what would you attempt to do if you could not fail? I think that came from uh, your dad. And I think he even brought that up. It, it, there it is. Uh, uh, even though this is... Uh, I have it here on my desk theater, to this day. Theater of the mind. This I is audio that. only. So for those of you at home, I'm showing him the paperweight on my desk today. That is outstanding. Uh, intentionality wasn't a luxury or a business philosophy. It's a, a requirement. I think that came from y- your dad. Uh, it's e- Oh, this is great, Will. I got this highlighted. I got underlined in the PDF version. It's easier to learn the right way to do things at the high end than it is to break bad habits. You can't always take it. You can always take it down a notch later, but it's harder to go the other way. That, that is, that's great. And then, and then you said your dad wanted uh, Hmm. me one day to run a company that was corporate smart and restaurant smart. And we talked about that and I'm just going to read one more. Your dad encouraged me to keep a, to keep a what? A journal. To keep a journal. Now there, there's a, there's, there's yeah. some context there. That's, but I know it's a blanket. I, I, I hate, I hate it when people, when we make sometimes blanket statements. But there's something cathartic. There's something. There's some reflective thinking required when we keep a journal in that situation when your dad recommended keeping a journal was, was that helpful? I was looking forward to to asking this question, how helpful and meaningful was that journaling experience for you? I mean, I think the, the two, the two main reasons he always insisted that I keep a journal were one, just in stopping to write something down at the end of the day, it, it forces you to reflect upon the day to kind of evaluate your, your wins of the day and the things you could have done better the next or that day. And, and in the latter of those two, you know, you try to be an enlightened leader. You try to be a great manager. And when you journal, you recognize a moment where you could have been better with one of the people on your team. And the moment you write it down, well, that's when you wake up the next morning and go say, I'm sorry to the person that you, you, you didn't necessarily serve at the level that you want to serve. The second reason is that perspective has an expiration date. And as you grow through your career, you only have the perspective of a server when you're a server. And no matter how how hard you try to hold on to it, once you become a manager, you lose it pretty quickly. And the best leaders are those that can lead with empathy. And if you've actually journaled your perspective over time, you have it right there in a drawer, in a cabinet somewhere. And... When suddenly you own a big company, you can find that journal from when you were a server and open it up and just tap back into that perspective enough where you can be a more empathetic leader. Um, so that, and he would probably 
give me a dozen more reasons why he wanted me to keep a journal. But those were always the two that at least got me to keep on doing it. <laughs> and a bit of help as you were writing a book. You probably didn't know you were going to write a book at the time, but I have a feeling you went back to that journal to pull some ideas and some snippets uh, for the manuscript. I, I'm guessing. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. We, we are rec- helped with a helped with a sometimes foggy memory. We are recording this interview a few days after an article about you in the Wall Street Journal. It is a great. We're not going to dive into it, but we'll have it uh, in the show notes. But again, that was a great article. You got to be pleased with that write up. Yeah, no, that felt good. That felt good. I mean. You know, not dissimilar to what I said to you uh, when you were when you were generous with your words about the book at, at the beginning of this conversation. Um, you know, anytime you you spend a lot of time on something and you put it out into the world, that's a that's a very vulnerable moment, right? You like, listen, I, I don't believe you can thrive in hospitality if you're not sensitive, right? You need to be sensitive to other people's needs in order to to kind of catch onto them and then react to them thoughtfully and appropriately. And um, I've also been in the restaurant business for long enough to know that not everyone's going to like everything you do and you have to have a thick skin. And I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of people that read this book and say less than kind things about it, but that doesn't take away from the moments of appreciation when someone reads it and, and does like it. Well, those people are idiots then. They don't like this book. <laughs> There, there, there's nothing there's <laughs> nothing to dislike oh there i know who will dislike this book the the people who kept being in uh number 51 51 because you you're making the top uh 50. <laughs> um i do have one before we wrap up here i have one nosy question and and, and i know you're going to be happy to, to to comment about it uh thank you dot nyc so you've got a consulting arm uh, I, I'm nosy. Uh, I've been in the consulting space for 20 plus years. So tell me a little bit about that <laughs> consulting uh, work that that firm. So the the consulting business is not a forever business. Um, we when when COVID hit, I was a, so I sold my company at the beginning of t- 2020. When the when COVID hit, I was a week away from signing three new restaurant leases on my kind of executive team or some people that I've worked with for 10, 15 years. And they're the best I've ever worked with. They're also very close friends. Um, and COVID hit, we decided not to do those restaurants in the city. And instead we have this big vision for this project in the Hudson Valley, a hotel, a restaurant, a spa, like a, a very big magical world. <laughs> um, and that takes time. That'll take a few years to develop and, and open. And, in the meantime, we're just curious people. Um, and the, the the ethos of this book is that I really do believe that every business that is in the customer service industry should make the choice to become a part of the hospitality industry. And so it's creatively engaging for us to help people that have made that choice kind of walk the walk. And so we've worked with everyone from medical institutes to luxury retailers and kind of everything in between to talk about how to start building a culture of hospitality, both for the people they work with and those that they serve. 
And we'll, we'll, we'll keep on doing that with the, the kind of companies that we're inspired by until we go back to creating our own worlds. I'm going to be pulling for you. There's a part of me that hopes you do both. Uh, by the way, that, that vision you have is in the Wall Street Journal article. I hope you do both. I hope you have some people that say, wait a minute, I love this teaching thing. I love this disseminating. Uh, and, and I, I'm just, I'm just, again, that, that's, that's, that's my two cents worth. <laughs> hey, we, so we, we, by the way, you mentioned Roger Martin. Uh, he is a prolific writer. We've had him on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we ask every author, do, do y'all, you know, reader, uh, favorite books. And, uh, I'm curious, what, what are some of your favorite books? Now, if you say, Mark, I don't have time to read. I'm more of a listener, uh, podcast guy. That's, that's fine. But are, are you a reader? I am a reader. Um, most, most especially over the last two years as I started working on my book, I wanted to understand how other people have approached theirs. This is an oldie, but a goodie, but I, I only just recently read it, which is the culture code by That's, Dan Coyle. I, I love that book, which anyone who hasn't read that it's, it's kind of a must read. Um, the other one, not a surprise coming from me, another oldie, but goodie, but is obviously Danny Myers setting the table, which for me is the precursor in many ways to what, what I did. Um, and then the two books that I've read most recently that I just really loved was apropos to the conversation, a new way to think by Roger Martin. And we just, book we interviewed Roger yeah. a few months ago on that book and uh, it is an excellent book. Good, good pick. Um, and then uh, this by a guy named Dr. John Deloney, Own Your Past, Change Your Future, um, who I met. I was speaking at this conference that Dave Ramsey puts together called Entree Leadership, and, and Dr. John was there and one of the best speakers I've ever heard and really like takes these ideas like kind of the woo woo stuff with the subtitles a not so complicated approach to relationships, mental health and wellness, but takes like those things that can be a little bit when some people are talking about them, if I'm being honest, annoying to hear about. And he makes them cool. He makes them accessible. He makes these ideas easy to understand um, and easy to invest in. So those are my, those are my current four. Well, I cannot, Thank you enough. The, the book is outstanding. Love your story. Uh, I can see that you've had such a, a wonderful, positive impact on so many people around you. And I would say the best is yet to come. You're, you're very, very kind. Um, I'm honored that I got to be on this with you. And and I hope uh, I hope everyone out there that decides to pick up a copy, likes it as well. <laughs> you are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Will Gadara, unreasonable hospitality, highly recommended, five stars all the way. I want to leave you with five questions as a result of this conversation. You heard one of the definitions 
hospitality. It came from one of Will's team members. Service is black and white. Hospitality is color. What is color in your business? What is color? Next question. I was taking notes as he was talking about hospitality. He says, you are not born to do this. This being hospitality. You choose to be hospitable. How are you choosing to do that every day? How are you encouraging and inspiring your team members to be hospitable? Number three, manage your money maniacally 95% of the time so that the 5% of the time you can spend it foolishly. That's the 95-5 rule. And of course, that 5% isn't foolish spending. It's actually, it can be transformational spending, which is hard to measure. My question for you is, what is the 5% being spent in your business? Number four, you heard about the concept corporate smart versus restaurant smart. If you do not work in the restaurant industry, change the word to your business. Corporate smart versus, say, e-commerce smart. Corporate smart versus the auto business smart. My question for you is, are you one or the other? Or are you both? I mean, really both all in. Finally, daily huddles. I'm assuming your company is doing them, right? Daily huddles. Now, if you're in the corporate office, maybe you're not having them, although you could probably make a a case for why we should. So Will says the daily huddles are less about the what, more about the why. If you guys, if you are in your business participating or leading daily huddles, and by the way, he called it the pre-meal. I'm changing it because I don't know if all of you, don't know if you are in the food industry. So again, I'm using the term huddles. Are you focusing more on the why or putting more emphasis on the what? Again, Will Gadara, great, great, great conversation. Appreciated it. The book, Unreasonable Hospitality. As I said, five stars. Guys, we need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Thank you.